It's Sunday, four days before the Jewish Passover, and people are crammed into Jerusalem. And there's an extra excitement in the air, an extra tension in the air, a little bit on this day particularly, because some of the Jewish teachers had been teaching for years that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, would come four days before the Passover. And so they would leave the gate to the temple open so that the Messiah could walk right in and, and come to the temple and then overthrow the Ro- Roman government and lead them back uh, into the nation that they had once had. And on this day, the crowds were anticipating. They were gathered together, uh, anticipating that the rabbi who had supposedly raised a man from the dead in the nearby town of Bethany would be entering into Jerusalem. And so in the middle of this crowd was a, a small cluster of, of Jewish leaders. They were respected Jewish leaders, and they were from a group that was named by an Aramaic word that means separate. And because uh, when the Jews had returned from captivity back in 537 B.C., many of the Jews had started to, to kind of melt into the, the Greek culture and lifestyle. And so in doing that, they had neglected obeying the law. But these uh, leaders and those that had preceded them had been called separate because they had a zeal for obeying God's law. And they, were, they, they separated themselves from the general public and they, they lived uh, to live out and obey the law. Most of them hadn't even noticed that, that this obedience had become uh, externally focused and, and kind of mechanical and, and legalistic and rigid. We know this group is the Pharisees. And we find a cluster of them in the crowd that had come out to meet Jesus on his way into, Beth, into Jerusalem. So pause that scene for just a moment. I want to take you back to John chapter 11, immediately after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So when Lazarus had died, many of his friends and family had come to Bethany and had come to, uh, to comfort and uh, mourn his loss and comfort his sisters, Mary and Martha. So all of those people were there to witness Jesus bringing him back to life four days after he died, and walk out of that tomb. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees, went to the Pharisees, and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. What's the response of the Pharisees in John 11 when they encounter Jesus? When they encounter the power of Jesus, they were threatened. And what do they do? They do what, what all of us do when we're threatened. They, 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 they go into the protection mode. They grab onto whatever gives them security and they they guard what they have. Back to the scene on Palm Sunday, we we find these Pharisees in the crowd recorded in Luke chapter 19. When, When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then... Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in that crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that very day, uh, he entered riding on a donkey. And you see the prophecies uh, just above in the outline in Zechariah, uh, the prophecies that the Messiah would enter uh, riding on a donkey. And so as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, the, the air is filled with excitement and tension, and these Pharisees are very threatened. And so in, in John chapter 12, verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You see, the Pharisees had arrangements with the Roman Empire. They were were comfortable with with the way things were. They didn't want Jesus or his shouting followers uh, to threaten all of that. 
They didn't want this uh, Jesus parade to rain on their parade. And they were, were uh, there uh, threatened. And so they were looking to control and, and to hold on to what they had. We see this, uh, this response to uh, times that we're afraid or threatened in, in children. Uh, and, and children, uh, whenever you, uh, your children or children that you've taken care of, um, they always have what? Uh, a blankie, right? A blanket. This, is, this was Emma's and this was Caleb's, okay? He's 21, she's 15. Uh, they don't use it so much anymore. But at that time, at that time, it didn't matter what that blanket looked like, how dirty it was, if it had holes in it or whatever it was. Uh, when, when they had a hold of it, they were secure. And you were to take that blanket away from them, uh, they were going to do everything they could to hold on to that, right? That's why we call it a, what? A security blanket, right? And, and, and so when we see the Pharisees threatened here, we see them holding on to, to their security blanket and what it represented for them. In our lives, the same thing is true. When, when we encounter the living Jesus, Jesus isn't about us keeping our comfort and our security. He's about changing lives. And sometimes it gets messy and it threatens us. And we respond the same way. We, we have our own security blankets. Maybe it's the status quo, wanting things to look and feel and, and be the same around us. Maybe it's wanting to keep the same people around us. Maybe it's wanting the, the same style that we're comfortable with around us. Maybe it's, it's whatever that is for us, that, that security blanket that we have. Jesus wants to be our only security. And so this morning, as we encounter uh, Jesus here with us, remember that just as the Pharisees wanted to guard what they had, we have that same response and allow that to be turned over to Jesus. Well, there was another group in that crowd, and, and we find them in, in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 17 says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Now imagine a, a dead man is raised to life. They didn't need social media at that time. The word spread really fast. And so we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but we see that they're shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And then what happens five days later? They're shouting, crucify him. What changed? They saw Jesus as he came in, as the, this man who had power to raise uh, a man back to life, as the one who was going to fulfill their agenda. He was going to come and he was going to overthrow Rome and make their life like they wanted it to be. And then it didn't turn out that way. How easy it is for our faith to be like that too. Our faith is about having Jesus so we can get what we want. And then finally in the crowd that day, there were, were uh, two of Jesus' disciples. As they approached Jerusalem with Jesus, um, Jesus takes these two disciples aside. And, uh, you know, I picture him like the quarterback, you know, drawing out a, a play in the, in the dirt there. And, and he says, now, now you two, you go down and take a ride at the next village and, and you'll see a convertible Mustang and a mini there. Okay, it was a, colt, uh, a donkey and a colt. But he says, you know, uh, get those and bring them to me. Now, and I can just hear them saying, well, but Jesus, you know, what do we say when the owner says, what are you doing, my, my, my donkey? Uh, or the Roman soldiers that are everywhere. What do, we, what do we say to them? And he just says, tell them that the Lord needs them. And we read in, in Matthew 21, 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have had lots of other questions for Jesus. But we see that they simply did what Jesus instructed them to do. They didn't guard their territory. They didn't, uh, I'm sure they were threatened. I'm sure they, they had all kinds of their own agendas, but they just did what Jesus instructed them to do. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to be a Christian. On Friday night, we experienced our rooted uh, celebration uh, here in the worship center. I think we have a, a picture here of uh, uh, the 42 uh, groups that were here in the worship center to celebrate all that God had done. And um, let me just tell you a quick about one of those groups that exemplifies how people were stepping out to do what Jesus instructed. 
We had a, a last minute, we found out that we needed to have some daytime groups because some people were signing up for daytime. And so uh, Pam Burton and Margaret Davis, who uh, many of you know, didn't have time to do this. They're serving everywhere in the church and the community and leadership. Um, but they felt like God was instructing them to say yes. So they said yes. And then this, this group of women, uh, this group filled up with women, mostly in their uh, senior adults, many of them who had been in decades and decades of Bible studies and experiences who could have easily said, I'm comfortable. I don't need to step out and do something like this. But they said, yes, they did what, what Jesus was instructing them to do. And then a, a, a Monica, a, a girl who just finished high school, uh, couldn't go to a, a nighttime group. She felt like Jesus was, was calling her to be in a group. And so she signed up and she got it put in this group with all senior adults. What would be the normal reaction? The normal reaction would be not to show up in week two, right? But she did what Jesus was instructing her to do. And I have a card here um, telling me about the impact of, of that 10-week experience from each of those women that was a part of that because each of them stepped out to do what Jesus was instructing them to do. And Gloria Johnson, here's a picture of our, our um, cardboard testimonies that were representative of how God had changed lives in those 10 weeks. And uh, over down in front, um, Gloria Johnson, uh, who was in that group, um, explained what happened those 10 weeks this way. She said, uh, 10 weeks ago, I was fearful, afraid, and worried that cancer would return. Today, I'm secure in Christ. God is in control, and I'm cancer-free. That's what happens when people, when each of us step out and do what Jesus is instructing us to do. And I don't know this morning what it is for you, what the security blankets are. Uh, but Jesus knows and he can show it to you. I don't know what your agenda is. I, I know what some of mine are. Uh, but we can turn those over to Jesus. And then we can listen to him and simply respond to what he says and go wherever he leads. Let's pray. Lord, you are here. And you want to speak to us. And so we now listen. Show us what we're holding on to. Show us what we're striving for. Speak to us. And we'll follow. Speak to us. Lead us. Guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 37. And it reads, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? A few years ago, I took uh, 90 Chinese students with a few leaders uh, down to a campsite down in Chino. And uh, uh, we had you know, a lot of fun activities. And one of the activities that we did was to take the kids on a, a little hike around the uh, um, lake that we, where we were staying at. And um, we got to this place, as we were walking that morning, we got to this place where there was a fork in the road, in the trail. And uh, some of the kids, about 10 of them or so, went to the right. And the rest of us kept going where we should have been going, straight. And um, uh, the 10 kids uh, all of a sudden burst out in, um, in horror. Because uh, as they were heading down this path that they were not supposed to be going on, uh, they came close to where... Some yellow jackets were hanging out. And the yellow jackets were in a hole in the ground. And they, they really didn't see it. And inevitably, they stepped, one or two of them stepped on that nest of yellow jackets. Now, we could hear as we kept moving the howls and the, the screams. And some of them quickly realized that the best thing that they should do at that point in time was to... Run. Yeah, you guys, you guys, that's what you need to do when you come across a nest of yellow jackets is run as fast as you can. Well, there were a few of them that decided that uh, the best thing that they should do is to stay right there and keep peeling off yellow jackets off of them while the rest of them were swarming around. In other words, uh, they really didn't know what to do. And in fact, we asked them later on, why didn't you guys run? And they said, well, we really didn't know what to do. Well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day did not also know what to do with Jesus. But you see, Jesus had come in their presence and had sort of ruined things for them. 
uh, they were really happy with the way things were going in Israel, uh, at least for them. They were in power. In spite of the fact that the Romans were in charge, they still retained the power and the rule over the people. And they kept controlling them in, in every possible way. And so when Jesus came in the midst, the one thing that they wanted to do right away was to get rid of Jesus. And uh, they wanted to get rid of him for a number of reasons. For one thing, he kept exposing them for who they were. You know, some of the words that Jesus had for the religious leaders were things like whitewashed tombs. Now, a whitewashed tomb, if you don't get that picture, is a tomb that looks really nice on the outside, but inside there's a rotted, a rotted body. And so he called the, 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 the religious leaders people that were just walking around dead on the inside. Another term that he used for them was blind leading the blind. And then one that uh, in, 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 some, in a general way that he used quite often was that they were like cups that were clean on the outside, but that were instead uh, very filthy on the inside. The religious leaders did not care to hear that. The other thing that he, um, that he often said about the, the religious leaders uh, was that uh, um, they were not really doing what they should have been doing for the people. You know, when Jesus came, he healed the sick. He, he, he cared for those who were captive in many ways. And, and, and he went out uh, uh, um, uh, feeding those who were uh, at points of starvation, if you will. Jesus questioned, and the religious leaders felt that, that uh, they were not doing what uh, he uh, was obviously uh, intimating them to do. The other thing, uh, reason why they wanted to get rid of Jesus was because he kept reminding them that the law was to point out people's sin and to draw people to repentance and not to hold people in captivity with every word and with every little um, uh, uh, letter of the law as the Jewish leaders did. And so the Jewish leaders were very, very motivated to get rid of Jesus. They also wanted to get rid of Jesus because he had pointed out to them that they did not even understand his word. His word that they had been studying for years upon years, they did not get it. Uh, there was prophecies about Jesus coming. There were all kinds of detail that they as religious leaders should have recognized, but instead they did not. And in fact, even the presence of God in their midst, Jesus himself in their very midst, they did not recognize that they missed. And so they wanted to kill him because he exposed them for not truly knowing God. And so in response, the religious leaders of that day brought Jesus before those who were in power at that time, King Herod and the governor of the Roman world at that time, uh, um, uh, Pilate. And they um, brought Jesus and said that, you know, this man is uh, guilty of, of X number of charges, including uh, proclaiming himself to be God. But really, the way that they went about getting Jesus before uh, the, the Roman governor was to point out that Jesus was trying to cause insurrection against uh, the Romans. And so they demanded uh, his death. They demanded his death. In Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 16, the Bible tells us that Pilate recognized and Herod recognized that Jesus was not guilty of any of the charges that these religious rulers and the people that they were motivating had brought against Jesus. That he was not guilty and in fact uh, declared him innocent, declared Jesus innocent. But the crowd of that day and the people that were against uh, the truth of that day and the truth that is still present today wanted Jesus to die. Nearly 50 days later, another group, another group responded in a very different way. The Holy Spirit had come and Pentecost had, had been, was about, um, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit had come as Jesus had promised as he ascended up on the day of ascension. He promised that the Holy Spirit would come and that the, Holy, the, the, the disciples' lives would be transformed. They would have power and they would be able to do incredible works, even works greater than he himself did on planet, on, on, while he was here on planet Earth. And the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and people thought they were drunken. And then um, the, Peter stood up and said, no, we're not drunk, but we're filled with the Spirit of God. And let me tell you, 
uh, how this can also change your life and how you too can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he preached to the people that were there. And we know that about 3,000 responded positively. So there must have been a, a greater crowd than 3,000. And uh, he preached and he went through step by step why Jesus was who he was, why he was the Messiah, and why they needed to make a positive response to him. And on that day, people did. 3,000 recognized Jesus for who he was, the Messiah, the Savior, the Reconciler, the one who changes our hearts. And so people on that day gave their lives over to Jesus. They were convinced about who he was. And people today, Jesus is still asking us to consider who he is, and he's asking us to make that decision to, to either respond to him positively or to respond to him like the Romans did. And I pray that you will respond to him like the 3,000 this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, we pray and thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus, that uh, we can come and repent of our sins, and we can find wonderful um, salvation in Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearly uh, a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He came in as this servant king, this humble individual. He was there to build a kingdom, not a physical kingdom, but a, but a kingdom in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to change them from the inside out. And then on Monday, he cleared the temple of the money changers, those who extorted those who were less vulnerable. That ticked him off in a righteous anger. And he dealt with those individuals because they had become a barrier to the Gentiles and for the gospel coming to them in a clear manner. Then on Tuesday, Jesus took his followers, his disciples, and he took them to the Mount of Olives. And there he instructed them. And on Thursday was the Last Supper. And the betrayal followed that with the arrest of Christ. And then on Friday were the mock trials that took place. The crucifixion followed. And then, of course, we're excited about what happened on Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing that you had just days remaining on earth, in this case, maybe three days, as we look at this uh, message in the Mount of Olives, knowing that you had just maybe three days to live, what would you do? Where would you go? What would you say? And Jesus knew exactly what he would do. And that's the backdrop of Matthew chapter 24. His teaching on the Mount of Olives. This picture behind us is kind of a more modern day picture of the Mount of Olives. It's mentioned in both Old Testament and New Testament, probably a dozen plus times in the New Testament. Jesus had a marvelous place to go. And there many times he would bear his soul to his heavenly father. But, the, but this, beautiful, this beautiful mount is a place where, where Jesus wept as well for the city of Jerusalem. And it often makes me ask, what makes me weep? What makes me cry? I could joke and say a few funny things. I don't have time to do that. But this Mount of Olives is where Jesus poised with his disciples and began to prepare them for what was going to happen in the next hours and the next days. He began to prophesy. And Bible prophecy is not so much knowledge of the future as it is really insight for us living today, right now, in the nitty-gritty of life. Knowing the end of all things is near, how should we then live, as Francis Schaeffer once said? Jesus was highly motivated with amazing love for these disciples, these individuals who'd walked the line of faith. And for those of us who are disciples of him today, learners, followers of Christ, he loves us so much that he gave his life to die for this world. But Jesus got together and he put together three themes in the next chapter. And the themes begin with the, with the idea of a warning to his, to his disciples. And he, decide, he tells the disciples this, Verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. This literal word for watching out is this idea of being aware of what is around you, surroundings around you. All throughout the history of war, people have been really good at deceiving. It probably started back with the Trojan horse, but the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops of our military had an amazing uh, operation in which 1,800 men from this 23rd uh, special troops operation began to impersonate a real, uh, a real troop. They brought in inflatable trucks and planes and anti 
uh, anti-aircraft. They'd fill these things up. They get on the uh, on the airwaves and and amplify their recordings, hoping that the German uh, intelligence would catch this. And they were so good at what they did, it allowed the real infantry to move into positions that were much more strategic. They deceived the enemy, and it led certainly and was a factor in the success of the Allies' D-Day invasion, which took place later. Paul beautifully states it this way when he says this. He says, when he looks at point number two on our outline, this word of encouragement, he says, stand firm to the end. First of all, he tells them to watch out. Watch out for those who deceive you. And then he says, stand firm. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our chapter on the resurrection of Christ, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I had a high school coach in basketball many, many years ago who we were going up against the team. I don't remember the name of the team but they had a high score on their team. And I remember my coach thought he'd give me a shot. And we went into that game and he said, Randy, your job is to stand firm and not let this guy score. In fact, I'll let you let him have at least, no more than nothing beyond 10 points because he averaged much more than that. He said, Randy, if you can hold him to less than 10 points and by the end of the game, if you can tell me what gum he is chewing, I will be so proud of you. And I remember that was my goal was to figure out what gum he was chewing and to hold him to 10 points or less. 32 minutes later, four eight-minute quarters, I realized that I had held him to only like 44 points. (laughs) Actually, I think it was a little bit less than that, but I'll never forget that idea of standing firm, keeping my spot, not letting this guy get close to the basket. Paul says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that everything we do in the name of Christ is never done in vain. You and I may not see the results of what's going on because it's out of our sphere of seeing and understanding. It's out of our sight, but it is nonetheless going on. We need to gain a biblical and godly perspective on this. And Paul says this as he writes the letter to the second Corinthians and second second Corinthians. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. So there we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary And what is unseen is eternal. So Jesus takes the disciples in the Mount of Olives. He warns them, and now he encourages them. And now he wants to set before them a plan of action. And he says in our third point here, and found in verses 42 through 44, he says, Therefore, keep watch, be ready, because the Son of Man will come. It's this whole idea also in verse 4 of watching out. He's kind of amping it up or ramping it up a little bit. He says, I want you to really keep your head in the game. Really be watching. Don't be conformed to the standard of this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But instead, have your mind changed and transformed by the renewing of God within you. And why should we, why should we be men and women who, who are alert and ready? Because I love how the apostle of love, John, says in 1 John 2, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed of him at his coming. You know, I I see a lot of people as they near the end of life. Some are confident, some not so confident. To be confident means to keep doing. And that's what he says, number four here. It would be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. That's an action step to keep serving the Lord, to keep doing until Jesus calls us home. The message of the resurrection is an important message as we look at God's message, Jesus' message to the disciples at the Mount of Olives, and a message that is very important for us, I believe, to understand today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the power of it. Lord, as we come into your presence right now, we recognize, Lord, that we see differently sometimes, but may we be individuals who set our minds more on the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen, the things that are, that, are, that are eternal rather than the things that are temporal. And God, may we be men and women who watch and who keep watch and who stand firm. And God, who continue to do until you call us home. And God, we thank you that uh, we have the privilege to know you, to have a relationship with you, and to serve you. Guide us, use us, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
You know, we are just at the beginning of that week of Passover. And back in Jesus' day, as the week was progressing and they got towards the end of the week, the religious rulers of the day were desperately trying to figure out how they could kill Jesus. In their opinion, he needed to be stopped. They were fearful that he was going to lead this revolution. As Randy mentioned, he was talking about his kingdom. He was talking about things being done on earth the way they had been done in heaven. And these religious rulers were very upset because he would, he would attack their traditions and he would expose the corruption of the rulers in the temple. So he had to be stopped. And then entered Judas. Mark chapter 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas is going to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And you wonder why. What was it that was going on in his heart and soul that caused him to want to do this? He'd been with Jesus for three years, 24-7. Why now did he want to betray him? There are perhaps several reasons. Perhaps it was that he was angry. Maybe he was just one of those people that, you know the type, we have them around today. You know, if, if you say up, they say down. If you say yes, they say no. If you say blue, they say green. Uh, their favorite word is but, with one T at the end. <laughs> and they, they just go against everything. And they are for nothing. And maybe Judas was just angry because of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he was upset because Jesus hung out with some of the outcasts of society, and a, and a good Jewish man wouldn't do that. And so finally, he, his, his anger just kept going and going, and finally he said, enough is enough. Got to put a stop to this. And so he went and betrayed him. You know, I have to admit that there are times when I find it pretty easy to be that contrarian person, that obstinate person. But I don't have to be. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, you don't have to live with that anger inside. You put a different DVD in. And you think about those kinds of good things. And let those thoughts replace the angry thoughts. Well, maybe Judas's problem was not anger. Maybe it was greed. This is probably a little bit more likely. We know that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples, so he, he had his hands on the purse strings, and, and he probably opened that purse a little bit too often for himself rather than for the disciples. And we know that he got upset and complained if he thought something was being wasted. And so maybe he thought, you know... If I can get my grubby little hands on some cash for betraying Jesus, maybe I'm just going to go do that. And maybe it was a problem of greed. Now, do we know greedy people today? Oh, yeah. Now, none of them, and nobody in this room would say, well, I'm greedy and I'm going to betray Jesus. But... Sometimes our greed and our selfishness stands in the way of people being able to embrace Jesus. You know, and, and it comes out very subtly. It's just that we want what we want when we want it. And I often think, hey, you know, 
I need to get what I can and keep what I can because nobody else is going to look out for me. Well, once again, we don't have to do that. You know, in the book of Philippians, just a little bit later in that chapter, Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, talks about the fact that the the church there had given to him so that he could continue to serve God. And he says that as a result of their giving, he says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. See, the antidote to greed and selfishness is to give and then let God meet our needs. But maybe the problem that that Judas had was not his anger, it was not his greed. Maybe it was that he just wanted his way. You see, there there are some people who think that, that Judas wanted Jesus to do what he, Judas, wanted him to do, namely to start a revolution and overthrow Rome. See, Palestine at that time was occupied by the Romans, And the Jewish people believed that there was going to come a Messiah who might possibly overthrow Rome, set up his kingdom, and free the Jewish people from Roman occupation. And Judas perhaps thought that Jesus was the best candidate at the time to lead the revolution. And so he figured, well, if if I betray him, maybe I can force his hand and get him to declare as the Messiah so that he'll do what I want him to do and lead this revolution. You know, this is really subtle, but it happens today where we want Jesus to do what we want him to do. You know, it, it's so easy to have our list. I have my list of the things that I want Jesus to do. Oh, and on our lists can be a job, can be health, can be financial aid. I mean, all sorts of things end up on this list. And we think, Jesus, this is what I want you to do for me. A number of years ago, I visited a pastor in a closed country where there was a lot of persecution. We went to his home. His whole home would fit on this stage And about 60 people every Sunday would gather there to worship. This pastor had spent 21 years in prison because of his faith. In the first six months, he told us, he was put in solitary confinement. He was in a cage where he could only sit. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't lay down. For six months, 24-7, he could only sit in that cage. And I said to him, Pastor Allen, how did you survive? How did you do that? He said two things. First, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then he said, I sang the old rugged cross. Because, he said, nothing can compare to the cross. And you know, when it comes to wanting Jesus to do what we want him to do, we really must remember that he has already done everything that we need him to do. When he went to the cross, he did it all. He did everything that we need on that cross. And our only response should be, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? That's our response You know, behind all of it, Judas gave in to the enemy, to Satan. But Satan was overcome at the cross. And if we want to avoid those traps that Judas fell into, we do it by focusing on the cross. So let me encourage you to do a couple of things this week. First, let me encourage you... Every day, read an account of Jesus on the cross. Mark chapter 15 is a good chapter. It's one chapter. You can read it just a few minutes. Read it at least once every day this week, maybe twice. 
And then at, at the end of the week, come to journey to the cross. But make this a week where you focus on the cross and what Jesus did for you on that cross. And you'll never fall into a Judas trap. Let's pray. Father, the cross was enough. On that cross, Jesus did for us everything that we need. Help us, Father, to be able to grasp, as we look at the cross this week, help us to be able to grasp all, everything that Jesus did for each one of us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday to you. Do you remember what that first Palm Sunday may have looked like? People were lining the street. The sun was falling on their faces. It was warm, maybe even hot, as they turned their face to look, as the crowd began to part a little bit, as someone was coming down the street. Now, they were on the Mount of Olives. It was a, a hillside that overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And all around them, on the Mount of Olives, would have been olive trees, their, their wide bases with their gnarly arms forming branches that almost kind of looked outstretched, like they were raising their arms in praise, inviting the people who were on the street to do the same. And as they looked and the crowd parted, Jesus came riding forth and he was on a donkey. And so people did raise their arms and they had palm fronds that they began to wave and proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And Jesus began to enter in on that triumphal entry, we call it. And do you know what he chose to ride on that triumphal entry? A donkey. It was a donkey that he rode into that triumphal entry. Scripture tells us that he was very specific about choosing a donkey. Let's look at the text in Matthew 21, 1 through 3. As they approached Jerusalem, his leadership team, the disciples, as they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage. Now, Bethphage literally means the place of unripe figs. So it was a very specific place. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So as the people lined the street and Jesus began to enter riding a donkey, people took their cloaks, the only cloak that they owned, and they began to throw it on the ground. It was kind of like a first century version of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus as he came. But it wasn't a royal stallion that Jesus came riding on, a victorious king. It wasn't even a, a really lofty, wise choice of a camel that would made sense in a desert climate. And it wasn't even his typical mode of transportation, walking, which Jesus did everywhere. No, instead, Jesus came on a donkey. Now, it was a lowly, smelly, ornery donkey. You, you know the reputation of donkeys, right? You know that they aren't so bright, <laughs> right? You know that they're pretty stubborn, they're not really reliable, they're not very well behaved. When you want them to move, they don't often move where you want them to go. We sometimes still call people donkeys when they behave this way. You know what I'm saying, right? Have you ever called anyone a donkey? Have you been called a donkey? Isn't it kind of crazy that Jesus would ask for a willful stubborn, ornery animal to carry him on one of the most important days of his life. The one day that Jesus was going to ride through the streets and be praised and worshiped and adored and proclaimed as God, he chose a donkey. 
Now, Jesus had some really good reasons for doing this. One of them was to fulfill the prophecy that Pastor Glenn just read before we celebrated the Lord's Supper. It's found in Zechariah 9.9. Let me just reread that to us. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus was coming as their king. He was coming righteous and victorious and humble. Seems like a bit of a gamble though, doesn't it? I mean, to trust a donkey with your red carpet run, would you do that? Would you trust it to a donkey? I mean, do you remember um, donkey in Shrek? Do you remember this donkey? Um, I mean, can you imagine all that is going on here, the immensity of it all? I mean, Jesus himself is coming. Miracle worker, rabbi, the hope of the nation, the very son of God. And can you see donkey from Shrek being the one that Jesus is riding? And you can just almost envision donkey thinking that as people are waving their palm branches and proclaiming Hosanna and having a party that donkey was thinking it was all for him. This is my party, man. These people are happy to see me. I mean, it's easy to get confused though, isn't it? I mean, who of us does not like a little praise, a little recognition, a little adoration for the hard work that we do? Um, Maybe just a, a shout out for being recognized for the things that we do. We can eagerly accept praise, even on behalf of God so easily. Humility is a hard one for most of us to swallow. It's even a harder way for us to live. And sometimes we talk about humility as eh, just talking about ourselves and maybe downplaying ourselves a little bit or, or um, you know, just slandering ourselves a little bit. But that's not what humility is about. C.S. Lewis says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually thinking of yourself less. You see, Jesus did not choose that donkey because that donkey had a great talent. He didn't even choose that donkey because he needed to have a donkey. Jesus chose to ride on a donkey because the entire life of Jesus was one that modeled humility to us from the beginning to the end. From the beginning of being humbly born as a newborn baby to Embracing a leadership style that said, I will wash the feet of my leadership team. To heading towards the end moments where he would continue to be the suffering servant. You see, Jesus called us to humility from the beginning to the end. So maybe it's okay for us to be a donkey and let Jesus be exalted. You see, God doesn't call us or use us because we're great. He doesn't call us or use us because we're gifted or talented. God uses us so that we can experience something bigger than ourselves. When we are humbled, we find ourselves in a position to recognize his great power. His great power, not our own. Can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you about something that makes me feel powerful? You know what makes me feel powerful? My cell phone. This little thing makes me feel powerful. On my phone, I can text people. I can set up appointments. I can change appointments. I can schedule my calendar. I can email. I can make phone calls. I can check up on anyone anywhere on Facebook, all around the world, anytime. I can take any picture I want and upload it and Instagram it anywhere, anytime. I can check the weather. I can read the news. This little instrument makes me feel powerful. It makes me feel like I can see everything and I can do anything I want, anytime, anywhere that I want to. And then you know what happened? I lost my cell phone this week and I became powerless. I lost my phone in Ikea. Okay, so the abyss of Ikea, right? I have no idea where it is. My phone tracker tells me it's in Ikea, but I have no reception, so it won't tell me where it is. So I went back three different times and spent hours 
climbing through the muck of Ikea on my hands and my knees, looking at things that most people don't look at in Ikea. Lots of cracks and crannies have old Starbucks. They've got lots of trash. They've got a lot of dust bunnies. I found myself in this position of crawling through dust, looking for my power source. Even as I prayed, oh God, help me find my phone. Well, God did not answer my prayer and did not help me find my phone. This is a different phone. But God gave me a few days of humility to remind me that my power is nothing. That something that made me feel so powerful like my phone could be easily taken away from me. You see, trusting in our own power is not what makes us humble. Being a donkey keeps us humble. Being a donkey means that in our marriages and our friendships and our relationships, our opinions and our words are not always the most important. In fact, maybe we're not even right sometimes. It means in our jobs or in sports or in after school events or in all of our achievements, those are not the things that are most significant about us. It means in our money, it's not all about how I spend my money for what I want or what I need, but that I start thinking about other people. It even means that we don't have to get thanked for everything that we do. That thank yous become a blessing rather than a necessity. You see, God does not need us to still be God, but God chose us. God chose you. Isn't that a humbling thought? You see, the the king of kings, the very son of God, the hope of our world was beginning an extremely difficult week. A week of persecution, of betrayal, of suffering, of hatred, of loneliness, of suffering, But he wanted to begin it all riding on a lowly donkey. You see, his life modeled humility because in humility, there is a strength that goes beyond all our own abilities. It is a strength that leans into God and says that God is bigger than this. God is bigger than me. You see, these humble donkey steps that I take can be used to usher in the very presence of God Almighty. So be a donkey, walk humbly, and carry Jesus to all the world. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be reminded on Palm Sunday that even though you came in greatness, even are you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are a humble servant. Jesus, would you grow in us? humility to represent you to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So this this humble king comes riding in on a donkey. And as he's cruising down on his way to Jerusalem, all of a sudden he hears this from the people. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And you can just picture what it would have been like as he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's hearing over and over and over the people say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This word Hosanna is a really interesting word. It's actually a word that's borrowed from Psalm 118. And what it means is it means save us. It it means, God, would you help us? God, would you watch out for us? God, would you care for us? God, we desperately need you. And so behind the hustle and bustle and the excitement and the joy Behind the energy and and behind the, the people that are gathered is this cry for help. This cry for salvation. Which begs the question, what do these people need saving from? What do these people need help with? Why would they cry out as Jesus is cruising down the road? Why would they cry out, help us, save us? We know some of them were probably thinking that this Messiah 
was going to free them from the political oppression that they were under. And so they're going, God, save us. Use this Messiah. Save us and help us. But this morning, I want to suggest that maybe they missed at least a part of it. And maybe you and I have missed a part of what Jesus came to do. And maybe it's because we're, we're new to this whole church environment. And we're going, why are people gathering here and singing? What are we doing? Why, what are we talking about? God saving us. What do we need saving from? Or, or maybe you've been around church for a really long time now. And at this point in your relationship with God, you've almost got it all figured out. You know what you're doing. You go to Bible study. You do this and that. And you're going, ah, Jesus, you can take a back seat. I got it now. And so this morning, as we hear the cries of the crowd saying, save us, save us. I want to talk just for a minute. What is it that God is saving them from? And what is it that God might want to save us from? Because I fear what they were doing is, God, the problem is out there. Save us from them. And, and God's going, oh, the problem is bigger than out there. The problem isn't here. And so what I want to do is I want to invite up my friend Andrew. Uh, Andrew, are you in the house right now? Where are you at, buddy? There's Andrew. Can everyone give a round of applause to Andrew? Andrew is one of my, four, is one of my students. Come on up here, Andrew. Run on up here real quick, buddy. There's that excitement. So Andrew, I love Andrew to death. I'm crazy about Andrew. And, and so you're going to think, wow, Eric, you are like the meanest high school pastor in a second. But I just want to, I just want to set this up as I absolutely love Andrew to death. He's, he's crazy. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's a senior this year, in fact. And so I, I do this analogy and I've done it in HSM before because I feel like some of us, when we think about what has God saved us from? Well, the church answer, the answer we've grown up believing or, or we think is the right one is sin, right? But oftentimes we, we think that sin is this thing that we did last night. Or sin is that thing that was a part of our past. Or sin is this thing that I can kind of manage or this mistake that I made and it's over here and I'm over here. And every once in a while I dabble in it. But for the most part, sin is right there and I'm right here. But the gospel and, and Jesus and all of scripture makes it clear that unfortunately that's not the case with sin. Sin is not this thing apart from us. It's actually this thing that has made its home inside of you and me. You know, sin, when you look at biblically what sin is, is sin is missing the mark. Sin is that God has this standard and each one of us, each one of us have missed that. And what sin has done is it has attached itself to us and it is a part of us. And so, Andrew, will you give me your hand real quick? Yeah, right there. That's fine. This is great. Oh, this is why they pay me to do high school ministry right here. Okay. So Andrew, this embodies this idea of baggage or luggage. This is our sin. And the reality is, is that sin has so attached itself to us that it is inseparable from us on our own, that we can't do anything to get sin away from us. And I'm going to illustrate it this way. Andrew, would you get as far away from your sin as possible? Andrew. Look, Andrew, Andrew, okay. this is a really awesome church, okay? And we want to impress them a little bit. So, Andrew, can you, can you do a little bit of a better job? Get away from your sin, okay? <laughs> and, Andrew, come back here. Come back here, Andrew. Andrew, come back here. Come here. Okay, all right. Now, Andrew, look, so we, we can't get away from it, right? Okay, and, Andrew, Andrew, I want you to impress all of our friends here, and I want you to hide your sin. Okay, let's go ahead and hide. So, so pretend all these people are watching you, which they actually are watching you and, and millions online. And will you, will, you, will you hide from your sin? Now, by show of hands, how many of you can still see Andrew's sin? Andrew, you're doing a horrible job. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. You're doing a horrible job. Try one more time. Can you just try to hide your sin? Can you just make it so that nobody can see and, and think that you have sin? Can you hide behind well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's decent. But here's the reality. There's not one thing you or me or Andrew can do to get away from our sin. It follows us. Have you experienced that before, right? Where you think you've gotten over something or you're really angry with somebody. Maybe you had a bad breakup or, or an issue at home or you have this addiction. All of a sudden you step in a room and you want to pretend that everything's all right. And so you put that clean act on, you try to hide, but inevitably your brokenness rises to the surface. 
Inevitably, that sin, that pain, that brokenness that you carry, maybe it's the things you've done, maybe it's the things that have been done to you, you're carrying on to that and you can't do anything to get away from it. Friends, you and me, we are handcuffed to our sin. Andrew, try to like break away. Can you, can you break away from your sin? Can you, try to, can you try to break those cuffs? He can't do anything. <laughs> he can't do anything to get away from his sin. And so friends, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey and people are yelling, save us. Help us. Would you save us, God? And he's going, oh man, I got, I got bigger plans than saving you from a political system. I got bigger plans than saving you from the debt that you're in. I got, I got bitter, bigger plans than saving you from the crisis that you may be facing. I actually long to unlock you from the very thing that is holding you back. From the very thing that is identifying you. From the brokenness and the pain that you carry everywhere with you, I long to unlock you from those chains. And so what Jesus does on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, aren't you glad I brought the key with me? What Jesus does is he willingly, and just like Pastor Lisa said, humbly, the God of the universe allows himself to be nailed to a cross. And as he's nailed to a cross, what happens in that moment? Let's hope it works. <laughs> Boom! In this moment. How does that feel? Feels pretty good, huh? You want to do it again? Should we try it? No, okay, all right. What Jesus does in this moment is he takes all of this sin all of this pain, all the baggage, everything that we can't seem to get together, he takes all of the sin and the brokenness and he attaches it to himself. And he says, I will take it so that you could be free. You see, Jesus unlocks you. This is his desire, is this Easter season to unlock you from the sin that has enslaved you. Jesus wants to take all that sin, all that brokenness that you, you may be going, God, I got to hide it because if you only knew what was here, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. He goes, no, no, that's precisely why I came. Because you, my friend, cannot take care of your sin problem on your own. You, my friend, cannot uncuff yourself from the sin that has defined you. Can you give it up for Andrew, okay? I don't want to make you stand up anymore. Thanks, Andrew. And you see, this was what Paul was talking about. In Ephesians chapter 2, and I just want to close with this. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, it says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, you couldn't. Get out of your sin predicament on your own. And God didn't uncuff you to throw it back in your face or to remind you how awful you are all the time. No, 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 no. The God of the universe uncuffed you. Your sin, your baggage, your brokenness has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Your sin, your brokenness is at the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave you his righteousness. And he said, now go and live free. So friends, as we cry out, Hosanna, save us. We're not just saying these empty words or these words that we've said for years. What we're literally saying is, God, apart from you, my sin just continues to build. And I'm continued to be chained to it. And there's nothing I can do on my own. But because of what you did, as you humbly rode on a donkey, and as you subjected yourself to death, to a torturous, painful death on a cross, and in those moments, as you looked out on all the people there, and we would have been there too, and you say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you, God. 
for saving us. Thank you that my sin is not mine to carry any longer. That my sin is not mine to try to manage or hide or run away from. But that you, Jesus, you said, I'll take it. I'll take it all. And better than that, I'll give you new life. So friends, this Easter season, Jesus is interested in one thing. Freeing you. Freeing you. And setting you on a course of following him where your sin and your brokenness is no longer chained to you, but you are free. That's what God is in the business of doing. That is what church is all about. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you personally for forgiving me. Thank you for taking my debt, my sin, my brokenness that I couldn't manage on my own, that I couldn't heal or fix on my own, that I couldn't do anything with, that I'm utterly helpless with. Jesus, thank you that you uncuffed me. That on that cross, when you said, it is finished, it was the sound of chains being released. So Jesus, right now, for those of us in this room that are thinking about what is that baggage that we're carrying right now? What is that sin that we're holding on to? What are we chained to? Jesus, we want to give that over to you. And it seems like a really bad thing to give you, but you want it. And you want to give us yourself. So Jesus, we want to humbly be honest. And thank you, Jesus, for loving us and going all the way to the cross on our behalf so we wouldn't be chained, but we would be free.